0: Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 8 this evening. If you'll join me back there in our journey through the book of Isaiah together. Last time we went down as far as verse 17. We left off there. We'll pick it up in verse 18 this evening. And the context, remember, of what we're looking at at this time, as we saw particularly in chapters 7 and 8, is King Ahaz who is reigning now in the southern kingdom of Judah, who was one of the ungodly and evil kings, one of the more wicked kings at that time, Uh, he found himself facing severe threat from an alliance between both the northern uh, Israel, which again, remember this time it's the divided kingdom, you have Judah, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, And you have the other 10 tribes uh, in the north referred to as Israel. And the king of Israel in the north had made an alliance with the king of Syria, not Assyria, but with Syria. And they had come down and were, in a sense, plotting an attack against the southern kingdom. And King Ahaz and his people are tremendously fearful. And it really looks like that this is going to seal their doom. And as this was going on and fear was gripping the hearts of the people, Ahaz was trying to solve things on his own by kind of scheming in his own human ideas and efforts. And as we look at the accounts that we have in 2 Chronicles, as well as in 2 Kings, it tells us that what he did was he went out and he made an alliance with Assyria, who was really going to be the next world empire. They were growing in their strength. And so Ahaz went out, strategically made a partnership and an alliance with them, even used God's resources, in a sense, to hire out evil pagan activity, and took God's resources, made an alliance with them to come and kind of be like mercenaries to offer defense and protection to him. And through Isaiah the prophet, God was telling Ahaz not to fear that though Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel had come against him and these two kings, that it was not going to stand, God was not going to allow it to succeed, and that he needed to stop fearing and trust the Lord to intervene. And really, the idea was to go break your alliance with the king of Assyria, stop scheming, stop trying to fix the problem yourself, and you need to just trust me and let me work rather than trying to solve and finagle and fix the problem yourself. And unfortunately, though, Isaiah was trying to speak this to Ahaz, even give him a sign to assure him, Ahaz wanted nothing to do with this because Ahaz was kind of just somewhat determined and persistent and in a stubborn personality and disinterest in letting the Lord work, He refused to trust the Lord, wanted to force his own way, and this was going to backfire horribly because all he was going to do was make himself and his kingdom vulnerable to the kingdom of Assyria, who was the next rising empire, who with great cruelty, they became a very barbaric people, were going to much more easily be able to come in and in a sense, oppress and use their power to dominate the Southern kingdom of Judah, even as they would conquer the Northern kingdom of Israel first. And this whole idea of trying to rely on something he shouldn't was gonna backfire, it actually was gonna be the very thing that was gonna, in a sense, cause him to be imprisoned. And he was gonna find himself kind of under the control of the Assyrians and bring punishment upon himself. So Isaiah has been trying to caution and speak to him about this. God's been trying to use Isaiah as his voice piece In verse 18, chapter 8, where we pick up, Isaiah then says here, Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are, he says, notice, that is he and his children, no doubt certainly including his wife as well, because remember the Bible tells us that his wife, Mrs. Isaiah, she was a prophetess as well. He tells us chapter 8, verse 3, that he went into the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son, and they gave that son a specific name that God told them to name their son as a testimony. And he says, we, that is my children, my wife, my family, are for signs and wonders. In Israel, the idea is we're like signals, we're signposts trying to indicate something to the king of Israel and to the nation, a message from God, from the Lord of hosts, Who dwells in Mount Zion. Now, notice here, Isaiah realized something, and I find this is very unique here. He realized that his entire family was all a part of the inclusive plan of God to basically, as a family unit with a joint purpose, be able to serve the Lord as one. He said, we, that is me, my prophetic wife, who God's given a gift to in this way, as well as my children, remember, who were given specific names. We're told back in chapter 7 that when Isaiah was to go out and to speak to Ahaz, that the Lord told him that he was to go out to meet Ahaz, chapter 7, verse 3, he and your son, Sheer Jashub, and again, Sheer Jashub—the name of that one son means a remnant shall return. So his one son was given that name, that though things were going to happen the way they were, that a remnant was still going to return, and that son's name signified a message. His life represented something, and then in chapter 8 again, we saw that as God was speaking to Isaiah and to King Ahaz through him, the Lord, after his wife conceived with their next son, told him, chapter 8, verse 3, that when she conceived and bore a son, that the Lord said to Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 3, call his name Maher Shalahazbots, which basically meant, as we saw, uh speed to the spoil and hasten to the plunder and so again that son also had a name that conveyed a message and isaiah recognized whether it is me whether it is my wife whether it is my children he says we realize that we are signs and wonders in israel the idea is they were to be a testimony to speak on god's behalf not just their 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 words but their lives their entire life was to be a message. It was to be a witness and a testimony. And I like this picture here, because here's a man of God who recognizes that his entire family life was to be included in the plan of God, and that as a whole family unit, their whole life was to be a message for God. It was to be a testimony to the Lord's people that their lives, husband, wife, and children, were to be reflective of an example and something that God was trying to say to those who could look upon their lives and could be influenced by their family lives in the different ways. And, And I like this picture here because I think it's a beautiful example, really, of what should be the heart of any family for that matter. And I like the fact here that it is the husband and the father who's the one acknowledging and recognizing this. I tell you, I remember reading this years ago when, you know, we had, you know, our, our daughters still at home. They're, of course, all married now, but when they were small children, I forget when it was, but particularly reading this when the girls were still young in verse 18 and, and how it just spoke to me personally as numerous places in the Scripture did in regards to part of what the Lord wanted for me and for Trish and in the raising of our children. And I love particularly that he says there in verse 18, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given to me what stuck out, me. In other words, Lord, you have assigned me these three daughters. This is, and Lord, these children are from you. You've given them to me as a gift. And like arrows, in the quiver of, of, a, of a soldier, as we saw in the book of Psalms, arrows aren't meant to remain in the quiver forever. They are meant to be taken out and to be launched. They're meant to be used. And so to me, it, it helped me to recognize, Lord, you have given me these children. They're a gift from you, but they're also a great responsibility. And our lives are intended to be a representation of and a ministry and a message in this generation. And so that really prompted me to feel a strong sense of responsibility that Trish and I would raise the girls in a way whereby I was ministry-minded and ministry-focused. Not just ministering to my children and helping them to raise up to be godly children who knew the Lord and so on and so forth. Yes, that was primary. But in a secondary sense, I can tell you, my primary goal in raising my children, my daughters, was not necessarily to make them from the world's perspective, successful. And I think that's kind of the American drive, is we wanna wanna raise kids that are successful. And so then everything becomes dependent upon the American idea of what success is. This amount of education, and this type of career path, and so on and so forth, and making this much money. To me, that really wasn't my focus. Not that I wanted to raise daughters to be irresponsible. What I wanted to do was raise daughters that were gonna be godly, and spiritually influential, that would have a profound ministry impact, not only as they were living out their lives, but that I would raise them with a heart of servanthood and a heart of ministry, and that they would want to be engaged in the work of the Lord around that, exposed to that, encouraged to do that. You know, from the earliest days, I remember, you know, having one of them on my hip and handing out bulletins and just, you know, whatever I could do to allow them to see the value of serving the Lord and ultimately trying to prepare them to then ultimately bless three husbands someday to be a really godly wife who is going to minister their husband well, who's going to take serious their calling, like Titus 2 says, that, that, that the older women should be teaching... Manage the home, love your wife. You know, I mean, I love your wife. Oh, my goodness gracious, that, that sounds politically correct. <laughs> ah! <laughs> to, to love their husband, to love their children, and to fulfill their primary calling of seeing their life as a ministry and to really want to function in that way, and not to allow themselves to be eclipsed by all the worldly pressures of what it means to be a successful American. But instead, to really see the value of, you know what, my primary calling as a Christian is I want to serve the Lord and whatever that looks like in a family and in different capacities and ultimately, again, and it's so beautiful to be able to have that perspective and privilege and now to see the fruit of that, to be able to watch my children in the ways of the Lord, to see them serving together with their husbands. And so, again, I just encourage you, certainly, if you're in the parenting phase, if you have those who you know in your life that are parenting so beautiful to see ministry here happening through Isaiah, his wife, his children, and the powerful influence that they had in the nation in what they were doing in their time. And Isaiah recognized that. My children aren't just for me to have and to enjoy. They're for me to ultimately, lure, train and to use to engage, to serve, to impact the generation that they were born in. So, you know, great perspective if you're looking for some guidance and a focal point in raising children. Verse 19, he says, And when they say to you... Seek those who are mediums and wizards. Now, again, we know Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 18. The law clearly forbids this, clearly forbids necromancy, which is seeking, you know, spirits among the dead or, or turning to spiritists and those who can channel spirits. And again, so when they're saying to you, Isaiah says, go and seek these mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter and and get direction from them, look for some guidance. Isaiah says, should not a people seek their God? Boy, that's a good question, isn't it? (laughs) Hey, why don't we turn to this, you know, Ouija board, or why don't we go see, you know, such and such, you know, uh, palm reader up on the boardwalk, or why don't we, you know, call 1-800-TAROT-CARD, and Isaiah says, um wouldn't it be better to just seek God, to just seek the one who knows everything, the one who sees everything, the one true and living God who has knowledge of all things? He says, shouldn't a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead, he says, on behalf of the living? To which Isaiah seems to then answer, verse 20, the idea is rather, he says, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, rather than seek wizards and mediums or spiritists or any other channels to try and get direction, he says the absolute best place to seek direction for any people is to go to the law and to the testimony as a reference to the word of God. One of the best places we ever should recognize there is available for all of us to go at all times is to go directly to the Spirit-inspired, authoritative Word of God, and to let the profitableness of the Word of God be exactly what the Bible tells us, Second Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable, beneficial for doctrine that is teaching, reproof, which means to challenge us when we're doing something wrong, For correction, which means after we're exposed what we're doing is wrong, it tells us then how to fix it and how to correct it, not just you're wrong, but the Word of God also says, okay, now that you see you're wrong, let me show you how to correct that. Let me show you how to do that correctly and to kind of stand back up straight after we've realized that we stumbled. He says it's profitable for doctrine or proof correction, training and righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work and how God's word becomes a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path and how valuable it is for us to be able to recognize there is always direction. And I tell you, I never truly ever am concerned about someone finding clear, sincere direction if with a pure heart through prayer, they go to the word of God and say, Lord, would you guide my steps? Would you direct me? Would you give me guidance? And how wonderful it is to have the confident assurance because we can speak to someone who's a godly person and can't guarantee that their counsel is from the Lord. You always still need to verify things yourself. We can you know, try and reason things out on our own. We can do what, and I, I fear to say, but I'm saying I feel is becoming a chronic problem in the body of Christ, is people leaning on their feelings and their thoughts and the way they perceive things and their perceptions rather than saying, nevertheless, what does the Word of God say? Not what do I think, what do I feel, what, what does the scripture say? I remember an occasion, you know, not too long ago, going back a number of, you know, I guess, I don't know, it certainly was a number of years ago where I was having a dialogue with a person. It was a clear situation where I was trying to instruct them how to resolve a relational issue, and I took them to the passage of scripture, Matthew 18. I took them to a few other passages and said, look, this is what the word of God says how you're to navigate and to work through these things, and they looked me square in the eyes and said, you don't understand. I'm hurting, and hurting people can't do that stuff. What you're basically saying is your feelings trump the Word of God. The Word of God says that these are the ways that we are to live out our existence, and either I submit to the word of God and I let the word of God direct me or I direct my own life. There's really only two options there. And so here, I love how Isaiah says, why would people not seek God when they need guidance? He says, go to the law, go to the testimony. Let God's word be the law, the governing boundary within our life. Let God's word be the testimony that speaks to us things that we need to hear. He says, verse 20, and if they do not speak according to this word, that is, they're not telling you to go to the word of God. It's because there is no light in them. So he says, if somebody tells you, hey, you don't need to go to God's word, just go to some other pathway to get direction, he says, it's because that person is living in the dark themselves. Verse 21, and they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall uh, happen, excuse me, when they are hungry, that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. And then they will look to the earth. that is, to look back down again. They can't find direction anywhere, up or down. And they see trouble and darkness, he says, verse 22, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So he begins to describe here really what happens when people refuse to to receive and seek direction from the Lord. And he says, these are the things that are going to happen. One translation renders verse 21 and 22, if it gives a little more clarity to you, It renders these two verses this way. Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry, and because they are hungry, they will then rage and curse their king and their God, and they will look up to heaven and then back down to earth. But wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair, and they will be thrown out into darkness. So again, the prophet is simply saying, listen, God's given us clear revelation and a place where we can seek direction and guidance from his word, but if we turn to other things and we look for direction in other places, he says it will always bring problems because we'll start making bad decisions and poor choices, and then we'll start to have consequences that come from that and sorrow and misery, and he says it will lead to just being dissatisfied, and then ultimately... He understands humanity, verse 21. He says, and then as people start to deal with the consequences of their own bad decisions from not seeking the Lord and seeking his word, look what he says, verse 21. They become enraged because they're now dealing with the fruit of their wrong choices. They become enraged and they curse their king and their God. The idea is, you know, it's that's the problem. It's the government's fault. It's the stinking government's fault. And then if we can't keep blaming it, No, actually, this is—it's God's fault. Why would God do this to me? Why would God allow this to me? And so often, when you step back from us making those statements, the honest reality of that is: when somebody's dealing with their own hardship and pain, and they've got themselves into a dark and a difficult spot, God didn't do that to you. You did that to yourself. And you're blame shifting on other people rather than taking ownership of your own poor choices. And he says, unfortunately, when a person gets into this position, they find themselves blaming government, blaming God, refusing to admit their own error. And all it does, he says, verse 22, is bring trouble and darkness and anguish and more problems as they're driven further into the dark because they're regressing and pulling further away from the light. Now, Certainly, you can tell the nation not in a good condition, but as we come into chapter nine, it's almost as if God now begins to bring a word of hope. Here's this very dark, gloomy picture that Isaiah is describing among the people. Verse one of chapter nine says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. The idea here is the gloom will not last. That's kind of the idea of the language here as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who, verse 2, walked in darkness have seen a great light. The idea is light then began to break through. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has Shine So, God in his mercy begins to work in a way, verse 1 describes here, whereby these territories that he's describing in verse 1 there, the area of uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, these were the tribes, their lot fell in the area of the northern Galilee area. And those tribes up in the northern Galilee area, around the Sea of Galilee, Became very dark and corrupt first, and they also were the ones who were conquered first when the Assyrians came down from the north. They were the most vulnerable and they found themselves suffering great defeat. They were heavily oppressed, as verse 1 describes that they were. As the Assyrians invaded the land, they most heavily oppressed and they first conquered this particular territory up there in the north, in the Upper Galilee region, and brought some very dark days. Yet, That devastation, Isaiah is saying, because God's merciful would not remain forever, because that same region of people in future days would not only be delivered, but God would not allow the gloom and distress to last forever. In fact, that area up in the northern part of the Galilee ended up being blessed particularly during the days of when God came to earth literally in a body of flesh when Jesus came because that area is one of the first areas that really began to see light in the midst of their darkness and that's what he's describing there in verse 2 when he says the people who walked in darkness up in that area have seen a great light referring to the light of Jesus the light of the world remember Jesus said I am the light of the world those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, we know particularly that verse 2, verse 1 and 2, but particularly verse 2, is a description of the prophetic ministry of Jesus being described, because in Matthew chapter 4, we're told that after leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is up in the north around the Sea of Galilee which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, Matthew 4, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes verse 2 here, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the regions of a shadow of death, light has dawned. So this spoke prophetically of part of the ministry of Jesus, and no doubt, here's kind of the interesting thing when you think of this too, is it says, as Jesus was moving around and conducting his earthly ministry and his public ministry, where was Jesus taking his directives from? The word of God right? As Jesus was walking in the will of the Father, as Jesus was being led of the Spirit, conducting his ministry in a body of flesh, being familiar with Isaiah. Remember the occasion we have where Jesus goes into the synagogue and he stands up and he opens to the scroll of Isaiah, the point where he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And again, he he says, this very day, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And how interesting, of all examples, Jesus himself took direction from the word of God, particularly the prophet Isaiah here, and purposely went into this area, bringing the light of God, his own life to shine upon the lights of people who were dwelling in the shadow of death and walking in darkness to give them light, proclaiming, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness anymore. You'll now have the light of life. And how beautiful to see this connection, how This is the fulfillment of this very thing. And I look at verse two, and I think to myself from an application standpoint, what a very fitting picture of the illuminating, saving work of the Lord that he is accomplishing to this day still. You know, when the Lord begins to work, maybe among a particular group of people, or maybe it's a family, or maybe it's in a community And how verse 2 is a very fitting description, how when the Lord's Spirit and the Lord's light begins to break into certain communities in different areas, how people who once walked in darkness, all of a sudden, they now see a great light. And all of a sudden, the Lord begins to light things up, and people begin to come out of the shadows of death, and light begins to shine, and they begin to see things clearly as they meet Christ, and people begin to get saved, and lives begin to get changed, Verse three, he goes on to say, and you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy and they rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So he's describing Isaiah here, how God will wonderfully save Israel and as a result of saving them, bringing deliverance to them, that it would bring about great joy to them through this work of deliverance. He talks about how God increased the joy of the people, causing them to rejoice, he says, like the joy of the harvest. And the idea there is after you've put in all the work and the sweat equity and you've plowed the ground and sowed the seed and harvested the crops, the great joy to see the fruit of your rewards coming in and how like that great joy of celebrating as well as he describes the joy when men return victorious from battle and they're dividing up the spoils of war and how the Lord, notice, was the one who was bringing that joy to the people. And that joy came to them because they saw the work of the Lord and they realized they didn't deserve it, right? And in the same way, as verse 2 describes really the, the saving and delivering work of the Lord and how a symptomatic byproduct of that is the Lord causes people who were depressed and in darkness and discouraged. All of a sudden, there's an incredible joy in their life when they experience the Lord's saving power and this joy is brought into their life and they're celebrating what the Lord has done. Verse four, he goes on to describe it saying, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian, for every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. So again, in that day, historically, the Lord would break the power of their enemies who were ruling them and oppressing them, whether it was the Assyrians, whether it was the Philistines, the Babylonians. It was always the Lord who would deliver them again and again. And here he describes how this is what would happen. The Lord would step in. He would intervene. And he says, the Lord would break the yoke of the burden that was upon them, that thing that was holding them down and enslaving them, the thing that was, in a sense, keeping them enslaved like a prisoner. And he says, and the rod of the oppressor who was controlling them would be broken and taken off of them. And notice how he describes it. He equates it, verse 4, as in the days of Midian. Now, that should speak a reminder to you. He's describing the time when God brought a great deliverance against the Midianite oppression and bondage over Israel during the days of, remember, Gideon. Judges 6, 7, and 8, where the Midianites were oppressing the people, they were robbing their crops, and the Israelites would go out and they would harvest the land, and before they could even thresh the wheat or enjoy their crops, the Midianite people kept coming in because of their rebellion against the Lord. God allowed them to suffer the consequence of being exploited, and in a sense, he made them vulnerable, and they were basically being robbed and ripped off constantly. And God raised up one of the judges, as he did numerous times in the book of Judges, And in that situation, he raised up, remember, a man named Gideon. And when God told Gideon that he was going to bring deliverance from the Midianites and that it would be a great deliverance, you remember how that story unfolded. You know, Gideon went out and initially he had a pretty substantial size army, but still he he had thousands of people, but yet the Midianites had over 130,000 men. And he was greatly outnumbered. And the Lord said, Gideon, you got too many people. Lord, I'm already outnumbered here. What what are you talking about? I think the ratio was like, you know, 12 to 1 or something. What what do you Lord, you you got too many people because if I give you victory right now, you will find a way and they will find a way to say it was our great strategy, it was our good efforts, it was because we really knew how to work a plan, it was because we, and he says you got to reduce the ranks. And remember the R- Lord took him through a process to reduce the ranks all the way down, you remember, to 300 people. And then with 300 people and very unconventional weapons, pitchers and torches and, and, and a, a blowing of a horn, n- no conventional weapons, nothing that was you know valuable for modern warfare and with a very small group of people and God brings about a supernatural deliverance and brings victory in a way where no one could take the glory for what happened, and everyone knew that was a total work of the Lord, (laughs) because the odds were so against that happening, there was no way to explain it other than that was a miraculous intervention, and to God be all the glory. And here, Isaiah is saying, listen, it doesn't matter how bad things have become, how enslaved you are, as it was in the days of Midian, he says, God has ways to bring a breakthrough. And God can break chains. God can separate and deliver people from things that hold them hostage and keep them in bondage. And that is one of the powerful ways that God works, is to bring mighty salvation and deliverance. And look, what is the greatest way God ultimately did that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 6. For unto us... A child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Notice this is an eternal reign. Kings would rise, kings would fall. This wasn't a king that would reign forever. He would never be dethroned. And how would it come to pass these things? Verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That is the strong desire and determination of the Lord to do what he wanted to come to pass. That's how this would ultimately transpire. Now, of course, we know looking at this verse 6 and 7, here we get another one of these beautiful prophecies regarding the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled such from the Old Testament, 700 plus years before the life of Christ ever came, and this is describing our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest Savior and the greatest work of salvation and deliverance that God ever wrought for humanity. And it was all God and nothing to do with us except that we are unworthy recipients who were in darkness and in despair, and we were in yokes of bondage to sin, and our lives were enslaved, and they were a mess, and Jesus intervened and saved us. And look his verse six here describes, it's pregnant with meaning, some of the wonderful aspects of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see, first of all, both the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Again, he says there, verse six, for unto us a child is born. A natural child would be born through normal human means. A child would be born. A man would come into being, but notice, that's the humanity of Jesus that describes how our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world as a child. He could have come in, think about it, I mean, God was going to enter into the world, he could have entered into the world as a 30-year-old man to start with. But you want to talk about coming in the most humble, you know, kind of non-threatening way possible, who should be afraid of a, of a baby? Except for when you have to change diapers and they keep you up all night, that does get a little terrifying, I know. But Jesus came in this vulnerable, humble way, so he was completely approachable, and God miraculously conceived in the womb, Isaiah seven, remember the virgin would conceive and, and be with a son and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God miraculously put the life of his eternal son, the son of God, who was eternally existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin woman miraculously, and then she gave birth as a virgin, to a child, to a son. And in that moment, deity added a second nature humanity unto himself. And Jesus, who was fully God, added a second nature, a human nature to himself being born as a child. So there's the humanity of Jesus. But the second half of that statement, unto us, a son is, look what he says, given. So, A child was born, that's the humanity of Jesus, a son was being given, the idea is a son that already existed for all of eternity was being given. Who is that son being given by? God the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. There's the deity of Jesus, the eternal son of God who was with the Father in heaven was given as a gift to become the savior. And God gave his son who was already God there at the throne of God unto us. So Jesus being born as a child, his humanity being given as the only son of God for our salvation from heaven describes his deity. And therefore verse six says of him, and the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, ultimately government describes rulership, a throne, ultimately all of that will rest upon Jesus. It may not look like Jesus is reigning now, but we know that the Lord is coming back and in the full culmination of his redemptive work will come back, Ephesians, or excuse me, Revelation 5, we just looked at it, and he will reclaim and redeem what he rightfully restored back to himself, and he will come and rule and reign, and he will take rulership over what rightfully is his and his name, Isaiah says, will be called, now notice again, will be, it's not technically his literal titles, these weren't all literal names in the way we think of Bob and Frank and so forth, but the idea is the name was representative of one's character, just like Isaiah's sons. Remember, you're to name his name, you know, Maher shalahazbots Hazbats. but the name represented something and typically a name was emblematic of someone's character of their nature oftentimes they would name their children in connection to experiences what happened benjamin you know again named describing you know the events that transpired from the book of genesis and so we see this in the scripture and here the idea of his name will be called these are things that depict aspects of jesus nature that this is what jesus the messiah would be like the first thing he says is that he would be wonderful, wonderful. And you should have a comma there. Some translations render that wonderful counselor. There's a break between each word. It technically isn't a wonderful counselor. It's technically the first thing that the Hebrew says about him is just, he's wonderful. And the literal term there in the Hebrew is a phrase that means to cause one to wonder at something in amazement or astonishment. And so that's the idea is to look upon Jesus, to experience Jesus, to come to know Jesus, it causes you in a sense to just wonder in amazement because you meet someone like you've never met before and you realize somebody loves you in your most unlovable condition and you with an astonishment go, I've never experienced this kind of love before. This is amazing. I've never known such a thing. I've never known such a person, and Jesus causes people when they encounter him, to just be left, in a sense, wondering in astonishment because he truly is that wonderful. And look, let me just say, how fantastic it is that one of the things about Jesus is he is so absolutely wonderful, because maybe you say, "I don't know anybody wonderful. In fact, everybody around me is horrible. Well, you can know someone wonderful jesus oh my marriage is horrible and this person is miserable that's okay you can be married to jesus he's wonderful and you can experience him being wonderful through your relationship with him so jesus is wonderful secondly it says of jesus that he's counselor that he's a counselor of course as we know and again how wonderful that we can go to jesus and get good counsel compassionate counsel, wise counsel, sound counsel, and that we don't always have to go to this person and that person, that we can go directly to Jesus. And he said, my sheep know my voice, and how wonderful that Jesus counsels us. He gives us guidance, and the Lord will advise us and direct us and, and give to us counsel that we need, and he is the most wonderful counselor. I, I tell you, I... I you know, firmly, firmly, hold a very strong conviction, and I know I I bother and offend people sometimes who want to pursue pathways, I think sometimes too prematurely of, I need to go pay for this psychological advisor, and I need to get this psychiatrist medicines, and I need this and that, and I can't help but to wonder, why do we not first go to the wonderful one who is a counselor and who is the mighty God And let him be our counselor to help us to process things that happen in our lives. And I am not trying to diminish in any way painful, horrible things we go through that legitimately need counselors and counsel and to listen to people and to offer input to people and guidance how to process things. But I do hold a very strong conviction that the sufficiency of the word of God And the spirit of God and the son of God, who is the counselor, is oftentimes more than sufficient to be our counselor in given situations if we allow him the opportunity to be such in our lives. And here's the wonderful thing. He's free. And he always has hours. All the time. You don't have, oh, I can't see my counselor again to next week. Not if Jesus is your counselor. Jesus is available in the next hour. And how wonderful that Jesus can be such in our lives to be a counselor as well. We're told, verse 6, of course, referring again to his power, to his deity, that he's the mighty God. He was God incarnate. He's the mighty one, the powerful one. Isaiah says, verse 6, that he's also the everlasting father. And the idea there where he says everlasting father, don't let that be something that kind of stumbles you mentally where you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I thought they're three separate, distinct personages, but yet all one. And, and wait a minute, I, how can he be the Son but also be the everlasting Father? The Hebrew there literally is, and, and again, the idea of Father, understand to the Hebrews, was an idea of one who was the origin of something, the source of something. So literally the language conveys there everlasting Father The Father, the source of all that is everlasting. That's the language there. The source, the origin of all that is everlasting. And it's describing how Jesus, being the second person of the Godhead, being one with the Father, absolutely, Him and the Father are separate and distinct, but yet Jesus, being one with the Father, is the source of everything that's everlasting because He's the eternal Son of God. So everything that's eternal, as particularly eternal life, comes from Jesus because he is the eternal one in that sense. He's also the prince of peace, Isaiah tells us, verse 6. And again, how wonderful to know that, that Jesus is the prince of peace. And until that prince returns and establishes his throne, there will never be perfect peace on this earth. There will never be. We can work toward it, we can try and legislate it, and we can keep hoping for it. We're never going to vote it into power. Just, I'm not trying to discourage you. You can rush home and try and see the debate tonight at 9 o'clock and think, one of them is the Prince of Peace. Please, somebody fix the world. They're not going to. They're not going to. But I tell you, here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and you'd be thinking, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is at work, why is there no peace on the earth? Because the problem is, is we're looking for peace circumstantially. Jesus brings peace internally. If you want peace from the Prince of Peace, that's directly tied to letting Jesus rule over your heart. And as you let Jesus rule over your heart, he can give peace That's internal peace that allows you to have a peace within, despite the chaos and the division and the craziness that goes on. And one day that Prince of Peace will return and he will bring peace. And how wonderful, when he ways Jesus brings peace to us, he brings peace among us. The Bible speaks in Ephesians 2, between Jew and Gentile, he is the one who brings peace. So again, when there's relational conflict, there's the key not trying to get the upper hand, but to say, you know what, what would Jesus want from us both? And if we're willing to do what Jesus wants from us both, oftentimes that's the the real connection point to letting the Prince of Peace bring peace, even in relationships amongst us at times. Verse 7, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So notice As Jesus is continuing to accomplish his ministry, it's wonderful to see again that there will be no end because there's no end to the Lord. He is the beginning and he is the end. There will never be an end of his government. In other words, he will keep ruling and keep reigning. There'll never be an end of his peace. He'll continue to keep bringing about the ministry of his peace and upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice, he says, from that time forward, even forever. And again, as Jesus comes and rules and reigns ultimately, as he reigns upon this earth, that reign isn't just the kingdom age alone, but notice it is a reign that will last forever. Forever. Part of Jesus' reign is during the kingdom age when he returns, but it is a reign that is going to be everlasting. And Isaiah was prompted to say, even in these things regarding the work of Jesus and the bringing to pass of this prophetic statement here, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts is what will ultimately perform this. And so whether it is a prophecy that God gives from his word, and and that prophecy and that prediction didn't get fulfilled immediately, think about it centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries in human history went by, and as centuries and centuries went by, people who were doubters, and people who looked at circumstances, and people who saw things among the Roman Empire, and each successive could have said, I guess it's failed. There's no way that could ever happen. There's just, there's no way anymore. Those things could just never come to pass, and God wanted it to be very clear that the way it was gonna come to pass on the human end was faith, relying that God can perform what he promises and that it was the determination of the Lord, it was the zeal of the Lord that would perform things on their behalf and would bring to pass, and God ultimately did many centuries later, but God performed, did he not? What he promised. And look, whatever it may be in your life, as you go through the word of God, and I hope you do, and and you take God's promises to heart and you read God's word in the present tense, and I encourage you to do that. Certainly, you should know God's Word, keep things in context, don't read things into the Scripture. But as I alluded to back as we were looking at chapter 8, verse 18 this evening, uh, how that verse spoke to me very personally in my life. As God gives you things from His Word, and God speaks to you, and God gives you promises, and God tells you things in your heart, the key is just to rest on this. It's not your job to perform it. It's not your job to bring it to pass. And if you and I try to perform and to make things happen, all we will do is make a mess. We'll make a mess. Right? The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now gonna be made perfect in the flesh? So we want to give God room to work, but how wonderful that as we can see, God performs something 700 years after he promised something God still has the power to perform in your life whatever it is that's going on. And you know perhaps that's the thing that the Lord wants us to just hold as an encouragement as we journey through the remainder of this week and the season ahead to just know, man, I don't have to be determined enough and I don't have to be smart enough and I don't have to do enough. What I need to know is I'm going to trust the Lord and he'll bring this to pass. He will perform what I'm not able to perform and how wonderful to let that responsibility be upon his shoulders and to rest in that peacefully. Why don't we stand?